Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from Ottawa, almost Quebec, Canada, is Mr. Frank Paradis. He is a coach and counselor, as well as a million and one other things that we'll probably only touch on in the next half an hour. But um, he has some incredible life experiences, and I'm so excited for him to share them. So with no further delays, Frank, how are you doing today? Uh, well, I'm, I'm humbled right now. <laughs> you're, you're humbling me. Um, yeah, I hope well, I can deliver on that. Well, I mean, you have some fascinating stories and you're a very open and honest man, which is all we're really looking for from any person in in this, uh, what they call post-truth society, according to these textbooks I work on. Uh, So (laughs) my generic question that I ask all guests, just so that you can kind of, the audience can see you more clearly, is uh, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And if you feel that you belong to a generation, which one is it? I'm 48 years old. Uh, I believe I belong to uh, Gen X, uh, the only generation that really matters. No. <laughs> no, but it's actually, you know, it's weird because I, I believe that we're the only generation that, like all the the all the, the subjects that are being brought up right now, like racism and, and sexism, and I, I get this weird feeling that Gen X was the only generation that actually went, let's not be racist, let's not be sexist. And the generations before and after sort of like, you know, went off the track, became different in that respect. That's really interesting. I, I for a living, edit and index books and stuff. So I, I read a lot of sociology textbooks. And they do actually say that uh, it's kind of like a crisis of conscience because you never even got to elect a president. Like you're the smallest generation, <laughs> the, the two on both sides of you are bigger. Um, so anyway, but uh, the other question was, did you grow up in the Ottawa, Quebec area or? No, actually. I, I grew up in Montreal, okay. um, and so that was, uh, yeah, that, well, up north of Montreal, like uh, in a suburb, but... do you, um, Did you speak both um, French and English growing up? I was actually born French. Okay, wow, cool. So, I am French. <laughs> awesome, awesome, wow. Well, yeah, because you, you have almost no discernible accent, but um, when you said your last name... Actually, go ahead and say your last name for our audience. Paradis. Yeah, that was when I, <laughs> I was like, no, no American or normal Canadian has that beautiful of an accent. No, uh, and that's why you were asking previous to the call, uh, you know, if I go by Francois or by Frank. And, and that's part of the reason I go by Frank, because Francois gets so damaged by everybody that I just go, might as well go Frank. <laughs> and so, yeah, just to kind of jump in, um, we'll work our way towards your near-death experience, which is um, definitely, definitely one of the things I'm absolutely hell-bent on hearing about. But before we get into that... Um, you had a pretty rough childhood, according to your own uh, biography. Do you want to get into that as much or as little as you're willing to? I did. It was um, the, part of it was okay. So family life was definitely not uh, great. Uh, that's a that's a, a definite. But it's not. So many things happen. I mean, I started uh, not only from family. Family not being abusive in the same sense, I guess, as other types of abuses that I've suffered because family is kind of intertwined. It's a little different. Uh, But at two years old, I started getting beat up by one of my neighbors. And uh, so I had a a friend, if you will, whatever, one of the neighbors I wanted to be friends with, I guess. And that neighbor... uh, 
he wanted to play with me. And so he would come, we would play together and then he would go, Oh, come to my house. And I, I mean, the, re the memories are very vague. Uh, and I think part of it is that particular uh, series of abuse uh, created a situation because you're two years old, you can't comprehend whatever's going on. It, it, it's such an experience that, that stays and defines, uh, like it defines me an, in a, as a person in a way that has made me excessively dysfunctional for a huge part of my life. But it's also something that allowed me to to go through uh, awakenings at a, at a high rate, I think, or, or I don't know how to explain it, but it anyway, so he would bring me in his backyard. And when we were there, in my memories, I can tell that he did not want this to happen any more than I did, but his older brother would come out and his older brother would either beat the shit out of me or him. And so he oh, would wow. just stand, stand aside and go, okay, sure, do the neighbor. <laughs> and so that, you know, stayed with me. And I mean, I spent, uh, you know, many years being angry at my family, like where were they, what was happening, you know? And eventually I talked to my dad once and he said, uh, well, why do you think we left at three? And I was like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Okay, so you were, you got that, right? <laughs> but, but for me, that was a, a, you know, and then it just continued, right? Like I, I had this, this desire to, to be loved and this, and so I would place myself in every situation where people would abuse me and take advantage and, and it was, it's okay today. Like I talk about it. And I mean, I, I still cry about it sometimes. Like I still, those traumas, I've dealt with them in a lot of ways, but they still come up and they, and they're always going to be a part of me. And, and they're a part of me. They're still a part of me that I love. Like sometimes people say, what would you change in your life if you changed anything? And as disgusting as my life may have been at times, I would not change a single hair because it's made me who I am today. I mean, that's so powerful, and I love when I hear people say it. I think because I know things that our audience doesn't, it, um, you should probably explain like that you did end up like living somewhat on the streets. Is that correct? Yes, I did. And I'll, I'll try to tie it a little bit as well with the the death life uh, sort of theme because, like I say, I, I've had a lot of time in the last couple of weeks to think about it after being invite, invited. Um, I spent, okay, so from my childhood going to uh when i like my whole teenage years whatever i mean i basically came back from school and spent my evenings contemplating suicide that was my um sorry emotions come up obviously no, uh, but it, it was that's what i lived in i mean i remember sitting in front of the the record player and i'd listen to like crazy stuff like skinny puppy and whatever you know really really light stuff right and uh and I would sit there and just be, it's it's either I wanted to kill myself or I had devised plans on how I could make it so that they would consider me completely crazy, stick me in a padded room, and I would be safe. It was, it was I don't know how to describe that, but it was like, I thought, I had devised a plan. I was like, I'm going to go in the middle of a really busy street, sit in the middle of the street, and when a car nearly hits me or whatever, because obviously I'm in the middle of the street, they're going to stop and go, what are you doing, kid? And I'll just rock myself back and forth and they'll think it's crazy. They'll put me in a padded room and nobody can hurt me. And it wow. was, you know, that I know I, I, I say it today and I go, wow, 
how can one come to that kind of logic, right? It, it just, it baffles even me and I'm the one that went through it. But it, well, yeah, that was, the and so the second, uh, like my parents, when I was 17, my parents got divorced. They had decided when I was a kid to stay together till they were eight, till we were 18. Uh, I'm not going to make a judgment call on that one. I never thought it was a good idea, but, <laughs> uh, and so when uh, I turned 17, they, they separated and my, um, uh, I went with my mom and at some point my mom was like, okay, no, no, now you got to go get a job and blah, blah, blah. And I was already, I mean, at 12, I started getting heavy into drugs. So I was already like long gone by that point. And so she said, no, from now on you get a job. She said, so starting tomorrow, you know, you go find jobs, you come back with all the applications, we'll fill them together. Well, you know, that's it. You, you're, you got to become a productive member of society or else I'm kicking you out. So I went and packed my bags and left. Mm. And that was my reaction to it. I was like a little rebel without a cause at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, and it's funny because my dad has said to me, he said, from age zero to five, you were hyper, like extra quiet. We never hurt you. And then at age five, you rebelled. That was it. You know, you became like anti everything, I guess. And my own memories of it, my own experience of it. When I was a kid, I literally created a bubble around me. And it was, and I think, I believe I do, uh, I practice magic uh, in my daily life now. And, and in that respect, I, I create circles of protection and things like that. Mm -hmm. And The interpretation I've come to in the last year, actually, is that when I was a baby, somehow, I knew intuitively how to create one of those. And I did. And I, wow. it, it protected me from age zero to five because I could not react to things. I could not, you know, it, it was too much. It was, you know, and, and plus being an empath, uh, like, I don't, I don't know if everybody will know what an empath is, but I'll try to dumb it down here. Uh, we feel other people's energy and emotions. Got it. But what I've realized not that long ago is that when you're two years old and you're feeling a whole bunch of adults' emotions around you, you're not equipped to understand those. You have Absolutely. no, no point of reference, not. And so you're going through that, that part of life, like just the confusion that comes from it. I mean, I'm shedding that confusion still today. It's, it's incredible what it did, but at the same time, again, that confusion is what allowed me to, to, it's what fueled me going, I will seek the answers, I will find them, and I will, you know, um, yeah, it, it was really the fuel that brought me everywhere I've been. And so, yeah, yeah so I went on the street. Sorry, I'll, I'll go back to the, so oh, I no, did, okay. yeah. from that point, I went and lived on the streets and, and did that for, it, it wasn't that long that I was on the street. Now I was on drugs forever, but, uh, well, until 29. Okay. But the, uh, yeah. And, and that life even brought me, yeah, there's so many experiences. I, I guess I'll let you lead with another question. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think we're sort of caught up to the point where I, I and again, I don't know the whole story, so I'm dying to hear it, but you said you had a near death experience, um, involving strangulation in 1995 and I'm trying to yes. do the math. So you're in your mid twenties. Yes. Uh, okay. that was when I first moved in Ottawa. Okay. Uh, and 
at that time I was uh, I was helping this young kid. What? Well, this young kid, anyhow, this younger guy, who had picked up weed and he was like, "Oh, I'm gonna sell weed." And I was like, "Do you even have a scale? Do you have?" He's like, "No." And I was like, "Okay, let me help you then." <laughs> yeah. And so I started doing that. And so we each took, you know, some and whatever. And then I'll try to make the story short. We eventually got uh, two undercover cops that showed up and started talking to us. And I was like, "Oh crap! I hope he understands." And so he turned around, he looked at me, and he goes like, okay, check for six, man. And I'm like, okay, well, six up. They're here. <laughs> and so I start, and I saw two bicycle cops a little further turning around to come back. So I was like, well, that's it. We're getting busted today, right? So I started running. Now, I'm from a bigger city. I'm from Montreal, so I'm used to having, like, back alleys and whatever. Ottawa has none of that. And so I'm running, and I'm like, where am I running to? <laughs> and all of a sudden, I see the two cops on bikes pass me and so i'm like well okay now i'm you know forget it they're ahead of me now so i stopped and the undercover that was behind jumped on me and started strangling me now it's not strangling having seen it uh on tv and whatever i mean he was choking me and i think all it was is a choke hold where you don't i'm not gonna die from it i pass out i guess mm -hmm. but in my experience of it though what ended up happening is I, as I was being strangled, I mean, I panicked, I panicked, and eventually something happened that I don't know how to describe well, but I saw everything, I saw like everything just, it was just a big blue background, almost the color of the sky, but not exactly. And at that moment, something in me, like my, my emotions, my mind, my body, everything said, okay, today, we die. And I accepted it. Wow. And I cannot describe this. I, I think the policeman let me go because he probably felt my body let go. Um, because my body completely, I have never in my entire life felt that level of relaxation. Everything went just relax. And it just went, okay, today I die. All right. We're there. So like a total acceptance just yes. in that moment. The impact it had, I mean, just, you know, and, and another thing happened for me to see death as a, as a, not as a bad thing, but when my mom died, uh, she died when I was young, I was 19, and I went and saw her the day that she died. She was in the hospital, she was sick, right? It was something we all expected, but, and when I went and saw her that day, she was the happiest. My mom was a very depressed person, and she was the happiest I had ever seen my mom. And she had asked one of the ladies beside her in, in one of the other beds to give her a haircut. And just there was a general well-being in her. And when I left, sorry, mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I left her room that day, I remember thinking, I was like, I should stay. And then I went, no, I got to go to work, whatever. You know, I got to go back. And so I left, and they called me four hours later. <sighs> wow. But what stayed with me is how peaceful she seemed. I think she somehow knew, right? She, she, the experience of death was already there for her, I think. And, and it, it really, you know, it, yeah, I, I don't think death is a bad thing whatsoever. What's so, I mean, I, at this point, I mean, my, yeah, my whole definition is so different now because I see everywhere I look, all I see ever is source energy. 
that's all I see. It's, it's God. It's whatever you want to call it, source. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't even give it a name because I don't think it can have a name. But it, it that's what I see everywhere now. So to me, death, life, birth, it, it's all just a whole bunch of waves that are all happening. And they're not even happening one after the other either. Right? Because time doesn't exist for it, it's a concept we've created to help us, but Very it deep. doesn't exist. Let's pull that thread a little bit uh, more carefully for our audience and for myself, to be honest. Uh, what I want to slow down on is this thing of the energy of it all, because the question that I ask every guest on the show is, what do you think happens to you when you die? And so you're giving a great answer for what death is and how you perceive it. But I am curious at this point in the interview to know what you think will happen to Frank Paradis. Like what happens to that human, that person that is it a soul? What you tell me. Yes, I believe it's a soul. It, it's a soul, and it's a. But even as a, even even looking at it as a soul creates separation, right? Yeah. Uh, because if you're a soul and I'm a soul, then we're separate. But those souls are see they're, they're bits. They're like a. It's like if we took source, like the original energy that was, and we broke it into a million pieces, but it remains all the same item, right? Uh, and so we're all a little bit of that. Now, source is experience is the whole process is basically source, God, whatever. Again, uh, experiencing itself. It, it it went in. I at some point I used to, to to. I think the best example, the best words I can use to describe what I think God or whatever is, is the ultimate potential energy. Like when you look at, you know, physics and, and science where you can have, you know, potential energy and then kinetic energy and then, well, God is basically all the potential energy of everything that could exist. And then creation was God going from potential energy to kinetic energy and starting to move. And wow. as it moves, it returns to itself eventually because eventually the energy transforms and, and you know moves around but eventually goes back to being potential energy and so it's this dance between moving and not moving that that is constantly happening so there's a lot of levels of perspective and you're speaking from many of them and i and i'm saying this in a positive way I, i'm impressed and i'm learning and so my question for you is among these many levels of perspective how do you deal with the quote-unquote morality of it all like how what is abuse like when a neighbor kicks the shit out of you as you said like daily or when a parent abuses their child or when a child abuses their parent or you know they mean the consequences go on and on when you uh when you do drugs and sell drugs in a culture that says drugs are bad, like uh, all these things, it's all energy according to you, but is there any morality to the exchanges of energy? There isn't. Um, morality is a, is a choice. Think of a coin, right? A coin that has two faces and each of those faces can't be independent of each other. What we're supposed to do is walk neither one of those faces. We're supposed to walk the edge of the coin. That's where the truth is, is on the edge of the coin. Now, the minute we, we go on one side of the coin, by definition, we're creating the other side. So the people that are fighting for good, if you will, are creating evil. 
it's you know the whole experience the whole gen what they speak about in genesis right the the uh eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil the 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 message in that as far as i think or from what you know where i stand is that it is when we decided to start calling things good or bad that the problems start mm -hmm. as long as we see things as just things then that's the experience of source we speak of negative and positive and we tend to look at them as being good and bad but negative and positive that's not what they are they are giving and receiving and in any interaction that we can have as humans with our world we're in one of those two positions we're either giving of our energy or re we're receiving an energy this is very fascinating and i have i have thought thoughts that border these thoughts and i've had conceptual moments where i think things like this but i've never thought of the analogy of a the coin and b the inherent quality of i always hear about like well to have good you must have evil to have a but i would never thought of it as we are the creators of this and it's it's sort of scary and empowering it's a lot of things for me um what is it for you is it empowering is it scary is it it's both it's it's um well that brings me to before the show what i was talking about the experience i'm going through these days i, I believe somehow that i'm i'm sort of at the onset of um like i've had different awakenings but i believe possibly that i'm now at the the onset uh of enlightenment and that's a whole different process right because every awakenings i've ever had it started with suffering and then you know there, there was a few steps right but it started with suffering and eventually that suffering transmuted into the lesson that was to be had into the experience that the new consciousness that was to be born and in this particular case it's been different it felt like i was given the option to refuse like it basically said a you accept now i don't know how to explain this i had a weird vision that came with it and, and it's a vision of you know, I called it earlier when we were talking, I called it Christhood, and I guess I will. It's the feeling of it is allowing God to inhabit you. Uh, and it really opens up a whole new perspective on one reality that gets thrown around everywhere, which is the death of the ego, right? And people are always saying, oh, I must kill my ego. And I'm like, no, you're going to run in the middle of the road if you kill your ego. You're done. This is not how it works. Like your ego is necessary in the human experience. But once you reach a certain point where, you, you know, because I've worked my entire life at cleaning my ego and at making it healthy and making it useful. And now that I reach a point where I can finally go, you know, it's serving me well. It's actually at its proper place. Now I go through an experience that says, OK, now we're going to get we're, we're going to get rid of it. Now your ego is going to be the one thing that prevents source energy from coming through from you and i go okay and so the visions i've had were visions of death literally i don't know if it has to do with the ego or if i'm supposed to actually die some weird violent death someday and it stopped me for a while i went i don't want nothing to do with this experience like please and and i went back to smoking weed and i you know everything to numb it right but unfortunately now i have the i also have the ability to see that that's what i'm doing so i 
you know, doesn't work, right? <laughs> so I had to go go back go back to okay, let's go back to being sober and feel this thing. But it, it the feeling of it is literally. I'm a very visual person, so it feels like there, there's this mass amount of light that's coming from behind me, and it's it wants to run through me, but it is too powerful for my being in a way, and so it it want it's it feels like it's just going to shred it apart, like my human existence is affected in ways that I can't even describe. Like it feels completely dysfunctional, and the only way through it because. I'm having a hard time making decisions regarding jobs, regarding things that used to be easy for me, right? Right, like at this moment, I mean, I'm sure it'll, you know, have waves and I'll get back to, because everything, to me, everything in life is cyclic. Uh, so it, I'll have a, a part of the cycle where I'll be comfortable with it again and I can't wait. But while it's happening, it, it just literally... Yeah, it feels like my ego has to be shredded. Like my, I have to abandon, you know how you have your intuition and, and we all get the sense that we need to listen to that intuition, right? And as I started listening to it more and more and more in life, now what's happening is that part of me has grown, 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 and it's going, okay, now every other parts are blocking it. And your decisions should indeed be taken from your intuition, not from, because your intuition is, is God. It's, it's source. It's, you know, uh, I hate when I use the word God, because again, it's the same thing. It has connotations for some people, but what's happening is it literally says, now you're just going to become a conduit. That's what you're going to be. Forget everything else. Like don't even try to think about it. And it, I don't know how to explain it. Like, that's what I'm realizing these days is that, like, to me, I always say the entire knowledge required for enlightenment, you can find on Facebook memes. <laughs> I, I more than agree with you. And I think my, my burning question to ask you, and we are running out of time, is you have children, and I do too. And the scariest thing to me about enlightenment has always been what would happen to my parenting ability? Like, how am I supposed to, like, rear children when I just feel nothing but love and acceptance. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but I'm curious if you can speak to that. It sounds not silly whatsoever. I'm like, this was when I went back to smoking, that was a big part of why that was my, um, because I now have at some point, like I, I do, I speak loudly on a, on a, on a, you know, the same as I speak to you with my higher power. That's the way, that's the relationship I have with it. And I, that I, complain about stuff and i you know i i swear at it i say oh you stupid thing why would you do this and, but it's okay right that's the relationship i have and it's healthy and it and it that was one of my reasons for not wanting to accept i didn't care it, like again like i say the vision i had right is is a, a death it's a it's at some point you know, and I don't know if it has to do with everything that's going on in the world right now, because because I mean, we could have another half hour about what I think about that. And but it's that was one of the toughest part. I was like, OK, so if that happens, what happens to my kids? Right. But one of the lessons I'm learning in this is as parents, right, we always want to protect our kids. Right. But the truth is, like I said, I, I would not change a single thing of what happened to me in life because that is what brought me here. And so why am I trying to change, you know, as a, 
Well, the person I was listening, the interview I was listening that you have actually, she was describing this, right? To allow your children to just be who they are and just let them grow into what they're going to become and not put our own ways of looking. And I mean, like she said, I fail at it miserably a lot of times. But so me trying to think of, well, how will this make my children suffer? If I try to prevent my children from suffering right now, I'm preventing them from getting their own awakenings. That is so profound. Wow. Thank you. That was such a great answer. Um, we are out of time. I always give my guests one last chance to kind of have the floor and just say anything they want to say. And you are a coach and a counselor and you have so much wisdom. So uh, as succinctly as you can, would you please leave our audience with uh, some sort of message? Well, you know what, because we're talking about death and life, if one looks at everything else in life, not the big death and the big birth, let's say, but the the process of life, uh, and I'll use the example when I went to rehab. When I went to rehab, I had a death. I died as the person that I was before rehab. And I remember having an image of a, of a Lego plate with a whole bunch of Legos just loose on it because everything I had built previous had fallen. And the, 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 that image conjured the emotion in me to go, okay, now I must rebuild. And when I look at it today in, in the respect of death and life, well, that's what it was. And we, in everything in our life, we constantly do this. And we always want to have the birth, right? We're always going like, oh, I want this thing to happen in my life. Well, if we want this, we need to think of a death. Something else in our life has to die. Well, Frank Paradis, that was profound. That was incredible. And last but certainly not least, you helped us put another nail in the coffin. Um, as always, we are so thankful for you for taking your time to come on our podcast. Um, I'm personally humbled by your experiences and your stories. Thank you again. And uh, as always, for our audience, my name is Mike Oppenheim. You have been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon. Walking alone when I walk into you and I see that you see me and I see you hear this tune and I feel